Welcome to Rector's Cupboard, a podcast for people who are interested in questions of culture and faith. We ask these questions from outside the institutional structures of religion. We're glad that you're listening and hope that you enjoy and benefit from the conversation. This is the final episode of season three of Rector's Cupboard. It is. And we are here, Allison. Yes, I'm and here. And Amanda. Hello. And myself being Todd. <laughs> Todd is here um, at the mic. And we are in our studio garage office space. Um, and we've had a great season. We have. I think so. We've had some really, really great guests that we've had and some great conversations. When we started... In September, <laughs> it was the end of the pandemic. Oh my goodness! That you kept predicting. About well, I think every it's six over months now. Or so you do this, yeah. So we're now on we're on to now we're on to other bad things, kind of right? Like it's. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we have a fantastic interview today. I think it's a great way to end the season because um, it looks forward to next things and better things, and uh, really, really excited about the interview and hope that those who are listening really enjoy it. But we thought that before we got to the interview and I and I introduced the guest for today, that we would uh, talk about this article that just came out a few days ago uh, in Rolling Stone magazine about a new memoir from a professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia, a man named Charles Marsh. I don't know this individual or his background theologically or whatever else. Actually, it's a little well, bit because he, he grew up he evangelical. Talked, yeah, evangelical so, in the South. Grew up evangelical in the South and um, says an, evil, an evangelical childhood is a total mind fuck. So um, his words, <laughs> yes. Listener warning. <laughs> Too late Listener now. warning, we just that. read an article title. Um, you guys have read it? Yes. Indeed. Did anything resonate with you? All of it. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I'm finding that too much with these articles that we've been reading and some of these books that we've been reading that I'm just like, this is entirely too familiar and it's mm-hmm. a little concerning. Do you mm-hmm. remember, I still have this and I, I'm not proud of it and try to push against it and I still have this sense and I think it comes from from formation in the evangelical church, which again, I'm extremely thankful for. Um, but part of, part of the difficulty that, one of the difficulties that came with such an upbringing or formation is that you'd come across an article like this, if you read newspapers and particularly in the secular press, whatever that means. And then you'd be, but even in, even in the Christian realm, and then you don't know the author and you'd be like, I don't know, should I be reading this? Mm. Or is this is this person trustworthy? You still maybe feel they're that? on the wrong side. I don't. I don't totally feel that, but I. I. I'm still the residue is still there. It lingers. So I still mm, think yeah. if I go and talk to somebody about this article, a Christian leader, another pastor, um, somebody at a seminary, somebody that I, and I say, oh, I read this article that that I have in my mind that maybe they'll be judging me because they, they know this person is this and they've put him in this container. And mm-hmm. so why are you even reading that? You know, which is still residue from that. Which Do you guys exactly know what I'm talking about? Which is the title of his book, Evangelical Anxiety. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Yeah. I bought, I have it on Audible, so I'll listen to yeah. it. I think it'll be an interesting book like to, to listen to, but it, I haven't yeah. done that yet. Um, he talks about two concepts in this, in this article, or actually it's an interview with him mm-hmm. from a, a Rolling Stone writer. Um, 
cosmic entitlement and mental torment. Um, so the gist is that that it's mentioned that there are a lot of reflections now in newspaper articles, editorials, whatever, magazine articles, and now books on evangelicalism and politics, evangelicalism and culture. And so, but what this interviewer says is that there are not necessarily, a, there's not a lot written that he's found on um, evangelicalism and psychology, like mm-hmm. the psychology of the individual and maybe the larger group and what particular ways of seeing in, in the evangelical world did in the kind of psychological realm. Um, and so he's, what, the, what the author says, and we'll, I'll listen to the book and hopefully some people will read it, um, is that the evangelical world was overcharged with meaning. That there was, you know, yeah, worship, I, not saying these are bad things, but worship and repentance and deep community, but that you were at the center of the metaphysical world. Like you growing up evangelical had this sense that like, it's me and God. Yeah. And that, had, I, anyway, I what, what that do you guys up. think? No, no, I, I, I think, I thought that that was a very um, apt description from him. There, there was part where when, when he was talking about that everything was so saturated with meaning, like you looked for meaning in everything. If, you know, your day was going bad, was that, you know, the devil, like some sort of spiritual warfare thing. And or maybe you'd sinned. And yeah, now you're, you're like, like you're there being was immediately always, punished. There's something. a there's a reason for this, and there's a reason for this, and there's a reason for this, and everything had some sort of other layer to it. Mm-hmm. You didn't pray hard enough, well, or say the right words, or yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and when you talk about kind of like this cosmic entitlement, is that what he was getting at the second yeah. part there, where like you're kind of the center of everything? Like you do. I I felt, and and more so in in reflection looking back at, at what I used to kind of think and believe that there was a thing of everybody should understand things the way that I understand them and that my way should be the default way. Like there, there was like an entitlement with that, that this should be the norm. This should be how governments are run. This should be how schools are run. Um, and that how I understand things is the way to understand things. I kept thinking in the world, but not of the world. Like that just were played over. Right, which over is in a scripture head. verse, right? Which does. Yeah. It is, but you, the way that we use it. I don't think it, it's meant that way. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, the end of this article, the interviewer mentions like you've gone through all of this, you're pushing away from this, you're obviously willing to use terms and titles like this, um, but you consider yourself a Christian. And he talks about how his, the, the author of the book talks about how his wife is like a campus minister, mm-hmm. evangelical yeah. campus mm-hmm. minister. And so he hasn't pushed away in, from the faith, but certainly doesn't think the way that he used to. And some of it would be, I think, the shift, Allison, that you mentioned there, the shift from kind of thinking, I have the thing that everybody else needs yep. um, to, wait a minute, maybe my faith becomes richer and deeper and more hopeful and more compelling to others if mm-hmm. I drop that sense of, you know, I know what everybody else needs to know and that I'm more open to the world, more open to others. Well, and not staring at every other person wondering if they're saved, right? Because it removes mm. the fear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he fear talks... Driven. I would say one of the things that he talked about um, is is a lack of, of tolerance of difference. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that was that, the second thing. Yeah. That was like really, I, I kind of stopped for a second at that and I was like, yeah, that explains a lot. And and I think he's correct that there hasn't been a lot of 
a lot of work, at least that I've, I've been aware of that has done what, what do these sorts of beliefs and how does this type of formation, um, what does that do to how your, your brain is formed? Like how you Mm. understand yourself, Mm. how you understand. That's a good question. Like, and, and so he's, he touches on that a little bit and this, this lack of tolerance for difference. I, I remember that as, as I have made shifts and I would consider them growth and, you know, maturity in my faith. I think some other people might label them differently. Um, I, I was really bothered by what you've already kind of Todd um, spoke about as like this residue of things mm. that I'm like, I don't believe that anymore, but why am I bothered by it? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And there are things that I kiss can't kind of get rid of. No, like, it, well, so there, there is this, this residue and part of this, like, I still sometimes struggle when somebody understands something so differently than, than I do. I have an instinctual reaction to like a defensiveness. And so mm. I, I have to work really hard to try to check that because I don't believe it anymore. But I think it was so, and I mean, I don't use this term lightly. I think it was indoctrinated into me. Sure. Mm-hmm. And the, so I still react to it, even though I don't on, on like a psychological, like yeah. a, an intellectual level, I don't believe well, it anymore. You named that at the beginning here is that like, that's what e- evangelical anxiety. anxiety means. Yeah. Um, that's the term that comes up in this, that, that the psychology of this produced an anxiety yeah. that you carry. The quote that picks up some of what you just said as well, Allison says, you wind up having a sense of having an answer for every question and a prescription for every kind of sexual behavior, human behavior, or having such supreme confidence that you've been brought into this one truthful, eternally enduring identity. And so when it, this evangelical psychology, observes difference, it simply can't abide difference. It can't ignore difference. It has to remove it. I mean, I think there'd probably be some good ways of of critiquing that and thinking, okay, well, you know, is that a too negative way of looking at it? But I, having been a pastor for many, many years in evangelical culture and churches, and um, I'm absolutely on board with this concept of evangelical anxiety, that that certain ways of oh, seeing yeah. things well, theological, yeah. theologically and I mean, produce this anxiety. How I could kind of couch it is, I, I haven't been as involved with other religious movements or kind of cultural movements to the degree that I could probably appropriately criticize their flaws. Um, I'm sure that many Mm -hmm. institutions have flaws. I I have uh, experience with the evangelical church. And so I'm able to see the things that, that are weaknesses in it and the ways in which I've seen abuses and manipulation take place because either I've experienced them or I've seen and talked to other people that have experienced them. So I'm not trying to say that there aren't problems with other things. I just, I have experience in this thing. And I feel like, Mm -hmm. like there, there is, I feel a slight, I feel an obligation to, to call out the ways in which I think something that may have been better intended than it's been used for, like the ways that, that it has hurt deeply, deeply hurt people. And Amanda, you said that like, when I said this, did anything resonate with you? You're like everything. And that you said that it. kind of like there was some emotion or, or like <laughs> mental heft in that. Yeah. I think like the psychology of it is I'm like even just kind of working through some of my own mental health stuff right, right. now. Near the end of it, he's got this quote of too blessed to be stressed. Okay. And oh, yeah. um, 
I just, all of that, I think is, you know, we talk about the lingering or residual things that hang out. And I think for me, some of that is um, the need to be productive and Hmm. the um, having a right to actually feel stressed because you shouldn't. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or even just struggles or things like that, because we didn't do a good job of talking about mental health in the church because, you know, right. everything's okay. Right. Here's the answer. Right. Well, well, everything has an answer. Saved. You found okay. Jesus. This is how you can make it okay. But also this yeah. idea that like, you know, you found Jesus and everything is okay. My life has now been turned around. This is answer to everything. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so then if you're not okay, what the heck have I done wrong? Or, yeah. um, you know, am I not approaching this correctly or am I actually saved? And I was thinking about kind of that emotional manipulation of like the constant altar calls or um, everything being overcharged. I was thinking about like the worship experience where you experience these like maybe more in youth, but I think they do it in um, there's lots of adult situations you were in well, a Presbyterian like that, uh, church so it wasn't as like charismatic in its worship no but, but you go to a conference or something there's now, like these like emotional that's a, highs that's an evaluation yeah. um, it's like I've got to feel this you know mm-hmm, it's not mm-hmm, to say there's deeply nothing emotional and, yeah no but then you feel like you're constantly chasing that high right. yeah right um and I think all of that turns into those lingering things later on um in terms of mental health and how you see things. Well, and I think it, it deeply impacts how you how you relate to people. I mean, you have relationship with yourself, certainly. I think the ways in which I've I've understood myself. Like when when he used the term anxiety, that was I was like that that labels it really well as mm-hmm. somebody who, you know, struggles with with anxiety at at moments and and tends towards that way in my personality. I think that some of the things that that I was taught some of the ways I was taught to understand myself or other people um, exacerbated natural tendencies that I have. Mm. I think so. I think I didn't like, I don't think it necessarily caused it no. independently, but, but there is part where for a personality like mine, when, when you talk about personal salvation and the, I, I couldn't even count the amount of times that I like, quote unquote, like rededicated my life to Jesus mm-hmm. because I wasn't sure. And I was so yep. terrified of burning in hell for all of eternity that I was like, well, let's do this again just to be safe, just to be safe, just to be mm-hmm. safe. And it was like, you get hit or tomorrow by a bus. Convincing like, myself a, that I was, yeah. but I did something, whatever it was, or well, yeah. I had an do I have some sort or of whatever. So I better, I better yeah. do this again because, you know, I've, I veered too far off but the path. It produces like um, this psychosis. Mm-hmm. There's this residue, some of the residue stuff is I remember thinking as a young person, but there's still residue for this, that like, oh, if I do something bad or sinful now, then like the next immediate thing that really matters to me in my life won't go very well. You've altered your journey. Yeah, that was not a sense, that was not like, Mm -hmm. oh, this actual behavior, bad, whatever that might be, it has an immediate like direct consequence to some other behavior. It's that this thing, which is, maybe totally unrelated to that thing that matters to me. But, but God, God is looking down and going, well, you have that up, Todd. So um, 
that thing's not going to go as well for you as as you would like. So, what, or, yeah, I think what I felt sometimes was like this paralyzing or immobilizing. Like, if you don't make the right decision, then things are going to be really bad. So, mm. simply don't make a decision. Ah, uh, right. Well, what <laughs> like well, that—that's that paralyzing fear of like I it, A or B, and I don't know which one is the I, right one, and so like just don't. Yeah, when he talks about things being steeped in kind of like this this over. Um, Shoot, what overcharged is with meaning yeah mm-hmm. like the amount of times that it was like well you need to have discernment for what god what what god's will is in your life and you get down to like what courses you should take and what career you should have yeah. and and every move then becomes some sort of cosmic potential yeah and if and you made the wrong one more aware of negative than positive kind of is i mean it felt like it i mean it's it's hard because i think it's it's easy for me in, in some of the ways that I've rejected or pushed away from from the understanding of faith that, that I had growing up, it's easy to see the negative for me. And I, I try to check that. Um, I think it's easier when you're pushing away to see the negative and stuff. It's like there's but a- I do feel like there was there were long lasting, impactful like ways in which I'm not sure I will ever entirely recover from. And I'm not trying to be overly dramatic in that like my life is fine in, in well, many we're ways all formed by yeah so mm-hmm. yeah. but there yeah. there is part where i'm not sure that i will ever you, we can say that about our families we can say that yeah about our, right yeah. so it doesn't mean you like hate the whole thing it just means no yeah. but there are ways in which i'm like how how i understand myself how i relate the things that i will instinctively do i think will be likely long-term if not permanently impacted by some of the things that i was taught yeah. and what's hard is it was done with such good intention. Like I, I look at my family structure and like there wasn't abuse there. It wasn't meant in a way to like harm me. Right. And and so it, it's, it's it was, difficult It was a to way be, of seeing the world. That's why he's yeah. able to say this is what evangelicalism did. I think that, well, and, and to go back to what you said, at times it can seem like there's a an infinite or a billion ways or more to upset and disappoint God, but really only one or very few to please God. And Mm -hmm. this kind of anxiety, I think that, and then you have this sense of like, well, we must issue this proviso for those listening that we're very thankful for our evangelical upbringing. And without it, I wouldn't know those people and the formation. And of course, so much of that is true. But, but what I find kind of hopeful about these kinds of articles is that if we can listen to them and, and see these common experiences, that they're actually something they're things that seek to kind of present a better view of faith. Yes. This, mm-hmm. Even this author directly says, and it's not for me to judge his faith and not obviously, right? Um, this author directly says, no, I, I'm still a Christian. And, I, and so that the question for me is, in that upbringing, I'm not looking at this for myself, but like evangelicals as a whole, people that I know and love, and did it produce more anxiety than faith? And if that's the case, and what you've just said is that largely it did, if that's the case, then what we're doing on podcasts like this and other things is saying, can we help you let go of that anxiety? If you want to let go of the faith and stuff, of course, that's up to you. Of course, the first thing's up to you as well. We're, we're not even afraid if you, if you feel that it's necessary for you to let go of the whole thing. 
um, that's we're not like tormented by that, like like would be in this old systems. Like, be careful because yeah. if what you're doing, yeah. if what you're doing gets somebody to say, "I don't believe this anymore," oh, that's the most terrible. I think thing. if someone just walks away, I think for them that might be the healthiest thing they could uh, yeah, possibly I, do. I don't, I don't know, right? But um, but in my faith, I I don't have a fear of that yeah. anymore, and that we would invite listeners to to like we would say, it is it is possible. Uh, to be released from that anxiety and so we hope that some of the stuff that we do here it, and i'm thinking about our guest um yeah the interview that say, we have coming I, up it, it like actually as um and i mean in this in this interview like y- you did the interview with with jamie but as i as i was you know watching and running the board and stuff while we were recording like the conversation honestly felt like a bit of like a spiritual bomb for me, mm-hmm. like B A L M. Yeah, like not not yeah. not, not lobbing bombs. Yeah. Like yeah. It, it felt like it felt like like healing, like because there was part where like to hear something that I care so much about framed in in such like this this positive and this hopeful and this like compassionate way, like it felt like healing to me. I, I feel the same, and I think that people like Jamie Smith, who will, I'll read the bio and intro here in a, in a few minutes. Um, I mean, he's a philosophy professor and the <laughs> editor-in-chief of a, a very thoughtful, artistic um, journal. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not lowest common denominator kind of way of seeing things. It's it's um, thoughtful. But but it I concur, Allison, that, there, it's a reminder that there are better and more hopeful, less anxiety-inducing ways of seeing things, um, ways to value our faith, ways to to use some of this old language that can even, to grow in faith. But but I hope to use that differently than some of the ways you may have heard it. Um, that are life-giving, that are compelling, that do have a component that, like, yes, it's okay that. Um, people who don't think like I do, don't believe what I do, may even consider it. Um, but that it doesn't have that anxiety producing thing of like, you better damn well go and tell them. And, you know, cause the bus is, the bus is coming <laughs> for them next. Right. Um, after it hits you, it's poor buses. They and, got very maligned in, you know, evangelical no church things. <laughs> so, um, so thanks so much. I thought I would outline a little bit, um, some of the things that we talk about in, in the interview just before, I uh, introduce uh, our guest. So um, the book that we talk about, How to Inhabit Time, is coming out in September, and we really recommend that for those who are interested or or are interested in this conversation that you pick up a copy and and read that book. Um, James K.A. Smith um, is someone who speaks a lot about faith and culture, the arts, philosophy, um, and comes out of... uh, uh, a field of study that a lot of people in the evangelical church know simply as postmodernism, right? So <laughs> he studied French philosophers and others and has written books from this. So it kind of, what it, what it does, a lot of what he writes does is take, take the Christian faith and place it in time and ask questions of like, how do these ways of thinking and seeing the world 
impact faith and how does faith impact them? What is the church, you know, how does the church interact with this? So there's a couple of names that come up. There's more, I'll just mention a couple. There's more than this. Well, because they may not come up in, you know, the regular everyday vernacular. Yeah. So Jacques Derrida and uh, Michel Foucault, Michael Foucault, are two names that um, if you do some sociology, psychology, communications, other studies like undergrad art studies, they may come up. Um certainly in postmodernism. So Derrida actually talked about something called deconstruction, which now for like, you know, evangelicals, <laughs> post-evangelicals, some different meaning people now. who can't stand post-evangelicals, deconstruction is like this battlefield word now. Um, but it was in like, you know, 60s and 70s that this stuff is being written about. It takes so long to get through the academy to the church. And by the time it gets to the church, in most cases, it's just really... Um, it's really oversimplified. It's just used at times to form camps to go like, be careful about this. If you, as a trigger word, if you hear this word deconstruction, you know, don't trust that person or whatever. What I you know can't go into the full detail, obviously, but what Derrida was talking about is that so in in relation to truth, you know, what can be considered true? That one of the reminders he's giving is that everything has some kind of interpretation. Everything is viewed right? Everything is, and, and the viewer, uh, so you get into like signs, signifiers, signifiers all this yeah, kind of yeah, stuff yeah. for those who, but <laughs> everything is viewed and the one who's viewing or reading or interprets. And so deconstruction is admitting that and to some sense seeking to, to take some of that apart. But the hope is, of course, that that's heading to somewhere better. So Foucault, Foucault is, so there's this book called Discipline and Punish by Michel Foucault that I read in my undergrad that starts, you're pointing at it on yeah, the shelf. Yeah, it's right behind you. It starts with this like psychotic torture execution, public execution of a criminal, I guess, or someone who'd been deemed a criminal in England. And it's not that long ago in terms of history. And people come out to watch this, but this person is like tortured and drawn and quartered, like, you know, this torn in mm -hmm. four pieces and people are cheering. And so it starts with this vivid kind of, but then largely what Foucault does, there's a lot to it, is he says, this way of control and discipline and punishment um, was super, super severe back then. But then his argument is going to be, um, it's actually, it's become less severe as we've gone through time since then, but more pervasive. So that there's more surveillance, yeah. more control. It's not so much about, over the physical body, though we could say in some cases it is, but it's not so much over the physical body as it is now over the mind. And that, that institutions, some, and you know, exercise control in these more pervasive but less severe, severely felt ways. Yes. In other words, it's a smart way to do it if you want to be the ones who are controlling, controlling yeah. because people are not as aware that they're being controlled. So there's this image in Foucault's book uh, that actually comes from... Uh, Jeremy Bentham, that is an image of what's called the panopticon. So if you picture a pie, right? So the panopticon is a prison and you picture a pie and so there's slices towards the center. So the, this is before internet, before cam, you know, before video, before. And the idea would be that prison would be built where each cell is like a slice of the pie and the center is a tower and the person in the tower is the guard or the, you know, whatever. And the guard can always see all of the inmates, but the inmates can't see that they're being watched. Um, so, of course, this was like revolutionary at the time, this, this concept, this idea, more than an actual thing. And, and Foucault is saying that's how this control is going to move, where you're constantly being surveyed, you know, monitored, whatever else. But 
it's perfect kind of monitoring because you never know if well, the guard's actually there. The guard passive. doesn't even need to be there anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It becomes passive in that way where you go, you're, you're like policing yourself. Yes. Like you've been trained to do that. Yes. Evangelical anxiety. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> right? So, we, so then two more terms before you know, I read the uh, bio here, and that's modernism and postmodernism. Again, oversimplified for this, but modernism is, a t- is an era, a time, a way of seeing the world for a period of time that, so with this mindset, the modernist mindset, here's how things work, here, here's how things get built, here's how society organizes itself, and here's how your psychology is affected, right? So the modernist mindset is kind of a, a really optimistic, in a lot of ways, mindset of human potential. It's very humanist. It is like we can build our way and plan our way out of all problems. So it, yeah. it makes sense that it comes from a scientific way of seeing the world because so large buildings are built, institutions are built, you know, diseases are cured, all these kinds of things. And the modernist way is like we're just we're just going to do that. And so there's modernist kind of landscapes. There's modernist ways of build, building things. At first, like any kind of way of seeing the world, modernism was rejected by the church, right? Because it's too humanist. Because of too, course. Yeah. But largely now, most evangelical churches, or any church actually, most that you've been a part of, that I've been a part of, work on modernist principles. Well, yeah, no, they're steeped in it. So when you're hiring a pastor or a a lead pastor, you don't necessarily ask questions of transcendence. You ask, are they good at that? You know, can can they they do do the following things? How will they they bring more people here? That's a modernist mindset. You don't kind of go, they seem to really know something about faith and God. And that's the, so the modernist mindset kind of winds up taking over um, Christian institutions mm. and, and Christian organization. Postmodernism, again, this is an oversimplification, the way that, you know, pastors back in the day would preach, you know, against the dangers of postmodernism. Postmodernism says there's no truth, um, right? There, nothing is true. Well, that's a threat to Christian faith, this kind of thing. So that's how it came out a lot. Um, but really, postmodernism is a corrective to the hubris of modernism. So something like cancer, we thought we could cure all diseases, and still we have this, right? So it does kind of um, splinter some of the assumed certainties in the world, and it is a challenge for institutions. And it does present a challenge for faith as well. But one of the things that people like Jamie Smith is really good at is showing, first of all, outlining all of these kinds of things and these these thinkers and writers, and then saying, so you, where you're at right now, how are you kind of a product of all of these things? Because you are. <laughs> and, you know, where do these things function in your, your theological view, your psychological, you know, makeup? Um, and what does this mean moving forward? So in the end, Jamie's book, uh, How to Inhabit Time, mm-hmm. is what you say, I felt the same way. First of all, there's just so, so much in it that's beautiful. Yes. But then it seems to say, what it said to me was, um, here's all this stuff that's influenced how we got to here, but there's a hopeful way of, of moving forward. Um, so we're really, really pleased about this. Sorry. Um, just before we, we do our last intro, I just one thing that we did talk about in the interview and I think is really applicable to this conversation we've just had that I... We, we discussed Arcade Fire's new album, We, um, specifically one of the songs in there. But I mean, the first... Sagittarius A, right? Something That's like what that. it's called. Like yeah, End of an Empire. That. Yeah. It's... The entire album is... Yeah. I, I felt like resonated a little too much for my own comfort. I don't know how you guys... 
have felt about it. The first song on like the first track is called the age of anxiety. Yeah. And like it, it talks and the just second about, one is called age of anxiety to rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah. And then you have like, there's so, I mean, if, if you haven't listened to the album, I think all of us would highly encourage that. And I felt like it really, it really kind of speaks a lot to some of the conversation we've just yeah, had as well as, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the things that, that you talk about in, in our interview with Jamie. Um, but yeah, like that album felt, yeah, a lot of feels. Yeah. It still does. It still does. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of on repeat. One of the things I was thinking as well, one of the things Jamie said is, um, I'm going to butcher the quote a little bit, but you're the singular bearer of your history. Yeah. I think that's pretty much it. And that's, that's, that's what we're talking about, right? Like, um, all of these things that form us yeah. and shape us. Um, we are the only person that experienced them. The only, like the singular bearer. Um, but that actually gives me a lot of hope as well. It is when you say that you go back to the beginning of our conversation here that Charles Marsh, when he's speaking about his evangelical upbringing says the, the world, the evangelical world was overcharged with meaning, but that, that, actually in the end prevented him from seeing things hopefully um what jamie smith does is kind of help us to see meaning hopefully yeah and see something beyond ourselves that does start to be a bomb for some of this anxiety Mm -hmm. so it's it's beautiful and well let me introduce him and then we'll go to the interview so thank you guys both so much Uh, James K.A. Smith is professor of philosophy at Calvin University. He trained as a philosopher, and he does have a gift of translating important concepts from the academy to the church and to society. He's written a number of influential books and has won awards for his writing. Jamie has also written for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, USA Today. I could keep them. I just pick some. (laughs) Christianity Today, the Christian Century, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. He's also editor-in-chief of Image, a quarterly journal at the intersection of art, faith, and mystery. And we were really, really honored uh, that he uh, sent us his book, and spoke to us uh, for this interview. So great to be here with uh, Jamie Smith, James K.A. Smith. I think it's usually Jamie, is that right? Can I say Jamie? Yeah, please, absolutely. Okay, not Dr. Smith, or okay, we'll say no, Jamie. No, no, that's no, all fine. no, it's and, great to be with you. And, yeah, Thank and you. thanks so much for doing this. Um, I thought we could start off just by, because, you know, for listeners who aren't familiar with you or your image journal. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you're doing now professionally and uh, what led you to your current work and vocation and kind of, cause I know that it's kind of spread out. You teach and do other yeah. things. And so, yeah. 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 No, that's right. Thanks. Uh, um, so I'm originally Canadian. Maybe that's worth registering. Yeah. <laughs> uh, originally from Southern Ontario. Uh, I uh, live and work in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I am, my day job, so to speak, is professor of philosophy at Calvin University. Uh, And then a lot of the sort of life-giving work that I give myself to is uh, my work as editor-in-chief of Image Journal, which is a literary quarterly that I know you know, Todd, um, that is devoted to what we call art, faith, and mystery. So my, I guess my work is sort of at this intersection of the academy, culture, the church. So I, I sort of enjoy that between space, so to speak. And I, I try to be 
I am trained as a scholar, but I'm trying to be somebody who translates philosophy mm. for wider audiences and maybe brings the cookies down to a little lower shelf. In terms of that, like in uh, teaching philosophy and the education both that you have and now that you teach, um, and the and image journal, so art, faith, and mystery. Um, the clearly from from reading your writing art, um, entertainment, kind of uh, music, all, all various forms of the arts is something that really has been interesting to you for years. But now you find yourself um, editor-in-chief of Image Journal. Uh, how does that, how do those worlds connect to you, the, the mm. worlds of philosophy and, and the arts? Yeah, it's a great question. It is true. So I, I think, um, you know, you've read some of my earlier books where I'm already really interested in film and so on. Yeah. And and I think it's partly because my philosophical training is is in what we call continental philosophy, French and German thought. It's which is basically the sexy existentialist on the left bank in you know French cafes. So um, that tradition of philosophy has always been very culturally engaged. Do you know what I mean? There's there's a way and there's a bleed between philosophy, literature. Uh, drama, poetry, film, that that mix of things. And so I think I've always been energized by that. I think it's also because the the sort of picture of the human person in that school of thought is richer than just sort of being a brain on a stick. You know, so, so we're not, it's a kind of philosophy that doesn't think human beings are just thinkers, but that we are affective creatures who are animated by desire and longing and hope and, and have bodies. And so in that sense, the arts have always had that incarnate mm -hmm. aspect to them. So I think that's the, the philosophy is sort of bent in that direction. And then getting to work with image has just been an absolute dream because mm -hmm. now in a way I get to be somebody who helps to curate mm -hmm. what that conversation between art and faith looks like. Also, selfishly, it means I get to hang out with people who yes. are doing really amazing <laughs> yeah. things, and so I'm learning Some from of the novelists, people, yeah. poets, yeah. the, the right. people that are that are in Image Journal. Yes, I, I imagine the company you are privileged to keep, the people you get to meet, and. Um, I wanted to ask in, in a minute a question about some of the stuff you've written on postmodernism and so coming from some of the philosophy stuff, but I'm thinking about what what you just said in terms of what drew you to that and how it speaks of the human person. You know, what does it what does it mean to be human? And, what, and I'm thinking about that in relation to faith and to some of the church things that it seems to be in, in reading some of your writing, uh, and maybe it's because I feel this as well, but th that in reading some of these philosophers, it it helped speak things in regards to faith that you weren't necessarily finding in, in the church. Is that fair to say? Or even yeah, if it's, even if absolutely. it's not Christian, even if it's so-called anti-Christian um, it, it was compelling, right. To ask these questions, these deeper questions that become questions of faith. Do, do you resonate with that? Absolutely. And, and in a way they, um, yeah, they gave, um, what would you, they gave language. It was like a gift of tongues almost to be able to yeah. ask certain kinds of questions that I don't think the theological categories or the narrow churchly categories that I inherited gave me yeah. language for. Although I think they also sort of opened the window for me in a strange way to realize that the church's intellectual and imaginative resources are much broader yes. than I had been taught. Yeah. So there is something of a discovery of, oh, 
the wells of the Christian imagination are a lot deeper than the sort of modernist versions that, right. that were offered to me. People were writing around these kinds of ideas and these kinds of things. It wasn't just like, if you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat, you know, book. Uh, it was, right. it was uh, something that, uh, so I'm thinking about that in, in, in relation to, um, Foucault and some of the, yeah. cause I studied some of that in my undergrad as well. And I'm thinking back to, you know, Bentham's Panopticon, uh, this, yes. this like, surveillance yes. system and this, and you outline in, in a book, um, who's afraid of postmodernism, Foucault's contention, and I'll get it wrong. Sorry. I, I'm, you know, really making it basic, but that, that kind of society as a whole is based on these models of discipline, punishment, surveillance, and that they get less intense, you know, as time goes by, but in a way more controlling. Um, as more I'm ubiquitous. Reading, more ubiquitous, thank you. As, as I'm reading that, I'm thinking about, you know, what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be part of the church and how these models impact the church, right? Um, when you wrote Who's Afraid of Postmodernism, because that's some time ago now. Yeah, 2006. 2006, and the church was responding to postmodernism as if it was a new thing. And of course, you know, we were, you were looking at it, you know, it, 60s, 70s, and 80s is when this stuff is, is being written. Yeah. Um, so why, why did you write books like that? Uh, what were you hoping to mm. say? Yeah, m mostly because, um, I mean, to, to be very candid, that book, you know, you would, you'd be somewhere and you'd hear some youth pastor railing <laughs> against the evils of postmodernism, and you couldn't recognize a thing that he was talking yeah. about. Yeah, there's no you know truth I mean? like anymore. They, there's no, that's all they say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it, it, it was, um, it's almost like the worst, it, it's like letting a term fall into the wrong hands and then they mm. deploy it in the, in the just most inane anti-intellectual way and, and in my experience as you as you already suggested in fact it was grappling with some of these postmodern critiques that opened up yes. the richness of christianity yes. and helped me to see how much the modern forms of particularly evangelical protestantism yeah. that i was familiar with had had bought modernism hook line and yeah. sinker so it was very liberating to find a deeper richer more catholic faith actually yeah coming through Foucault and Derrida and Leotard. Yeah, uh, it, it's a great, it's, it's not a long book, right? And I think it's part of a longer series, but it, even 2006 seems like a long time ago now, but I really do recommend it. One of the things I wanted to talk about from there, like, and it maybe comes from this concept you just gave of like, you know, it drops down from the sky and drops into the wrong hands, is the term deconstruction. Yeah. Um, and so in there you talk about Jacques Derrida and, and uh, you know, because it, that's in large part where this term comes from. Um, and it's okay that it could mean something different than, than now, sure. but um, how do you relate some of what's being spoken about now as deconstruction with where this term actually kind of came from and what it means? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how in the weeds you want to get about this. I'll, I'll say <laughs> yeah. this. Um, we'll we'll, we'll so jump in if we have to. I'm very, very sympathetic with, with, everyone who needs to work through the fact that the forms of Christianity they inherited have massive blind spots and their anger that they didn't tell them the whole truth. And, you know what I mean? Like, so well, you just said I'm all for You that. just said you did that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. So I, I get it. I think uh, the irony is, is sometimes deconstruction language now gets deployed in a way that to me sounds a lot more like a modernist enlightenment narrative, which is I see through everything now and I can sort of walk away because I see 
you know, I, I'm, I'm above the fray of illusion and now I can see what the master narrative is. And I'm like, yeah, well, that's at least not what Jacques Derrida was about. <laughs> you know, it's, and, and uh, there's ironically, there's almost more humility in Derrida's version of mm. deconstruction than the kind of populist use of it right now. Right. I mean, in a, in a similar way, like if I were to rewrite who's afraid of postmodernism yeah. in 2022, which I would never do. But if I would, I would say the exact way that, I don't know if they talk about this up in Canada in the same way, but as soon as somebody down here uses the phrase critical race theory, I already know they don't understand right. the yeah. complexity of what we're talking about. Because they, what happens is, again, they heard some youth pastor yeah. or some, some inane uh, yeah. blog or whatever use this term. And they're like, well, I know I hate that. Yeah. I know, I know I hate that. And so then they deploy it in ways that are just utterly ignorant of the real theological or, or philosophical resources that are, that are behind it. So uh, I think maybe part of my project is just to help uh, folks be a little less reactionary and to hear the gifts that are offered to us in these critical discourses. Yeah. I like that because what your answer there shows that, um, so take the term deconstruction or critical race theory or woke, you know, these yeah, things, yeah. that the kind of ignorance, not trying to be judgmental there, but the, the lack of understanding and maybe even interest in understanding what these things are, both from those who embrace the term sometimes, like, you know, I'm deconstructing, is it? Yep. and yep. from those who critique the thing. Like yes. oh deconstruction is terrible and it's like it's like there's yes. there's a similar kind yeah. of you know ignorance that okay yeah. we'll just use that term which I clearly saw with postmodernism postmodernism as well your book twenty six I, I love philosophy because it makes things messy yeah and I, I think the truth is usually very messy I mean I don't know I, I haven't pre checked this with you but even like in in my years as senior pastor um, some of the you know, maybe he's a popular philosopher, right? And maybe you'd roll your eyes and I don't know, so it's risky, but um, Alain de Bontemps or whatever, however, however I say it. Yeah, yeah, I, no, 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 yeah, yeah. Okay, absolutely. so I, I read some of his yeah, stuff, sure. I read some of his stuff on work and some of his stuff on faith and stuff, so, and I'm reading this stuff, it's kind of in some ways invigorating my faith, and yet he's speaking a lot about his atheism, right? Yeah. But such a yeah. deep respect for faith, it, I, it's yes. very curious how... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You, so your book then, um, 2016, You Are What You Love, um, again, fantastic book, highly recommended on discipleship, uh, habit, a lot in there about ancient practices and liturgies. There's a term from there I just want to pull out. There's lots okay. there, but, and it's the term secular liturgies um, that you kind of go back to a few times in there. Um, what, what, tell us what secular liturgies means yeah. and how it relates to a larger concept. What's fun is there's, you, there's actually a line to be drawn here from Foucault. Okay. All the way up to this conversation. Because I would say one of the gifts that Foucault gave me was to actually uh, awaken me to the dynamics of formation. That is, that as actors in society, we are not just informed by ideas, but our habits and dispositions are formed and shaped by the practices and rhythms and routines and rituals that we give ourselves over to. And so I, I use this term liturgy, which is a churchy term, I realize, but I use it kind of in a small L way just to help people to realize that there are all kinds of cultural rhythms and practices and rituals that are like very loaded. They're not just something that you do. They do something to you. Yes. And so if, if your mode of cultural analysis 
is only cares about ideas. Like if you're, if you're just sort of scanning the culture horizon to discern the messages in a culture, you will completely miss the power, the affective informative power of these cultural liturgies. And I think that explains, I think it explains a lot of phenomena in American Christianity. Mm -hmm. I'll just speak from the south of the border here now. I think it explains how people can think that they are orthodox but still be completely hoodwinked by consumerism or militarism or institutionalized racism. Because let's take racism as an example. If you ask somebody, do you believe in the ideology of white supremacy? They will say, well, no, oh, no, 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 no. I don't believe that, right? Like, I don't, I'm not committed to that idea. But if you realize that systems and structures have rhythms and rituals that are sort of inculcating a story in which I, as a white man, am the center, well, then you realize, right. oh, I could be formed by the secular liturgy, even though I declaim the belief. Does, right. that, does that make yeah, sense? Very much. So the practices, the forms, the kind of consistent, I have this, I'll get to it in a few minutes, but one of the things I love about your new book that's coming out is your consistent references to to music, to Avid Brothers and others that you... And um, I think, if I'm remembering it correctly, you actually mentioned that you have a playlist that comes out with your... Yes. Okay, that's great. Yeah. So yeah. I yeah. thought, you, you likely know the band Arcade Fire. Um, Absolutely. And their new album, which is just fantastic. And so yes. as you're talking about these secular liturgies, I don't know if it applies, but I'm looking at Amanda and Allison here as well. Um, we have this song in our head often, or I do, and, and that, uh, un, it's not called unsubscribe, it's, it's part two of something. I think it is. Is it? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah you're right. Goes, but it's I like, unsubscribe. Unsub- so I'm thinking of secular liturgies yeah. and the freedom when you kind of break some of these patterns, and I would imagine the same would be with some Christian liturgy that, you know, adopting them is great, but sometimes breaking them can be helpful, that um, when, um, when they say, I unsubscribe, and the next line is, fuck season five. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, yeah. which is which is me saying like i'm not gonna i've, I've fallen into this liturgy now where i have yeah. to right yeah. the, or this kind yes. of thing that yes. and which obviously in your book you talk about liturgy as life-giving or its opposite um but the aware the ability to be aware of like what are these practices i have and what and how we, are they and, forming me yeah and, and and in particular what they are forming are habits right these sorts of dispositions that we are learning often unconsciously. It's also why, I mean, I I actually, I love that Arcade Fire analogy. There's also a sense in which, though, to unlearn a malformed habit takes more than clicking unsubscribe. Uh, Do you know what I mean? Because what has has to happen is now (laughs) you have to, there has to be, you have to replace, you have to unlearn the malformed habit and you have to give yourself over to a kind of reforming habit so that you can sort of replace it. Right. And that takes time. And this is, this is why I'm interested in dynamics of time. Which is perfect because I was just going to move to your book that's coming out in September. What a segue. And, and um, you know, without being too much, too flattering and too much of a, you know, a fan, although I am um, this book, which I've, you, you've uh, blessed us with and being able to, to read in advance. And so to have some, like, I've got some questions from it. Great. You continue to break down some of these divisions that I see, um, in, in much of your other work and this, uh, mostly around time, this, this idea, um, we've talked with others about this, Jeff McSwain in North Carolina and some others like writing on sanctification and, but this idea that, um, you know, once I was terrible, 
um, and now I'm great, or now I'm good, because I didn't know Jesus, and now I know Jesus. I'm a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. And uh, You do um, such a nice job of just what you just said, of letting go of something, but then pointing us towards something better around mm. the Christian life and sanctification. And, you know, so I want to just pull a couple terms from there. Um, one is uh, temporal dislocation. Mm. Uh, what is that? Um, and, and maybe, so tell us about, you can do start anywhere. Tell yeah. us about your new book, about this kind of dislocation and, and you know, why yeah. these things are interesting to you. So in some way, the, the new book is called How to Inhabit Time. And, and I guess one of the sort of fundamental convictions of it is, I, I do think in the last 10 years, you've probably seen this too, there's, I do think there's been a new richness in our literature and reflection on spiritual formation, mm -hmm. right? In particular, thinking about it as in these formational dynamics, habit formation and so on. Um, but I don't think we've taken seriously enough that we are temporal creatures. Like to be finite and to be created means that we inhabit time and history in a way. And so at the beginning of the book, I try to diagnose why I think so much North American Christianity is characterized by a temporal disorientation and dislocation. And I, I actually think the source of it is mostly because people imagine their faith is atemporal mm -hmm. or supratemporal. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like they somehow mm -hmm. we imagine, oh, well, because I'm in Christ and God is eternal, that must mean that somehow my spiritual life is above the flux and above the fray. And I just think that that's um, a bad theology of creation and a bad theology yeah. of sanctification, because I think God knows that we are temporal creatures, that we have histories, we are formed by our past, like, that you are the singular image bearer that you are, because nobody has your same history. Nobody has lived the story that you have lived, and God knows all of it. And when God redeems you, it's not an erasure of your past. Yeah. It's, it, salvation is not like hitting some reset button, and now all of a sudden you can be what you're supposed to be. It's, it, is, um, it is a reclamation mm -hmm. project where God takes up our history mm -hmm and renews us and launches us into a future, but we still bear scars. We still have our limbs. We still uh, um, have our gifts that were bequeathed to us by generations past. I, I, it's trying to lean into those sort of temporal dynamics. Well, You're my first interview about this book, so I probably I, well, I tell you what, I love. I, I tell you, I love it because I think that both individually, personally, and then kind of looking at the church as a whole, the, the gathered community. Collectively. There yes. is a malaise that comes with failing to see this nature of our humanity and our image bearing, as you say, that you have a line in there that um, about churches or Christianities, like certain ways of seeing Christianity, that know how to be faithful uh, anywhere. I think you put anywhere, but like anywhere but or, or any time but now. Know how to be faithful any time but now. And I think that's in reference to something that you call know when Christianity. Yes. Um, yeah. Tell us about that. Like how. Yeah. So, so, you know, the same way that, that some people have this illusion that they can have a, a, a standpoint, a view from nowhere. Yeah. Right. As if, as if, because for example, Oh, well I have the Bible and the Bible is God's word. And therefore I have a God's eye view of things. It's like, mm, that's not how it works. Yeah. <laughs> You're still a creature. 
You're still a creature. And in fact, God's incarnational impulse is to come and meet us under the conditions of creaturehood and finitude. Well, the same is true about time. So we can't have a view from nowhere and we can't have a view from no when. And that's not a problem. Like we shouldn't lament that. That's just what it is to be a creature, which is precisely why I think we have to rethink what faithfulness is. Faithfulness is about always answering the call to the kingdom that God is calling us to in this now in which we find ourselves, given the very specific histories that we come from. And that's true for you and me as individuals, but it's also true for like, the collective of my congregation or our denomination or this church in this moment, what we are called to is a factor of when we are. And um, I I think we need to become much more astute discerners of, of what the spirit is doing in the now and how the spirit is calling us to be faithful in the now. Well, you, the, the um, familiar to many of us who have like, you know, Christian, past or been part of church or and and read books probably but is the concept uh, memento mori right you mentioned that in there but then you add this concept i'm going to use the same sounding letter at the end but memento tempori that's that, how i'm which saying which is it what too. you're saying <laughs> okay yeah it's made up or tempori. and <laughs> yeah, then yeah. i wanted to delve into this you, you brought it up uh, something a little bit deeper and i i'm aiming to do this hopefully and hopefully some people who are listening who have grown up in a kind of faith that has been primarily about preservation, right? About holding on. You speak about this so well, and that's where you bring up this, this, you know, counter concept of discernment rather than preservation. You write about the tendency to nostalgia and preservation. How do you see this as a necessary conversation to, to help people to see, okay, if your faith has been mostly about preservation, there's something more. So thinking of the churches you know and the Christians you yeah. know, how does it, you know, why, why does this matter? Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I, I really mean this pastorally right but but i think you're right that if you're if you've been shaped in such a way that you think being faithful means repristinating the past over and over again um to do anything other than that feels like backsliding you know feels like like transgression and and i guess i want to i want to help people to to realize that what god calls us to is faithfulness but faithfulness is not static. Yes. Faithfulness is Amen. not just a preservation project, as you put it. It is not, it, faithfulness is not about um, protecting and, and sort of re, reconstituting a past. It's about in the moment, listening attentively and obediently to what the spirit is calling us to now. It's, it's funny, you know, I, I don't, um, philosophers shouldn't do the bible but uh, i'll say this (laughs) i was so struck just in in that spirit of trying to be a listener this past sunday i don't think it was a lectionary text but um uh our our pastor preached from john 16 in the farewell discourse in the upper room and at one point jesus says to the disciples i still have many things to tell you but you cannot bear them now Mm -hmm. and i thought that is like a glimpse into the heart of God, right? Who says, I actually, there, there are so many things 
that I want to tell you and show you and reveal to you and call you to, but you can't bear them all at once because you're not there yet. You know, you're not, you cannot bear them now. I think to realize that God knows that we're these temporal creatures who in some ways we have to go through some things to be able to hear and receive what the spirit is calling us to. And I I think to live in that trust non-anxiously is, I hope, the calling of the church in our moment. Can't you just picture so many people you know and love? I mean, I don't know your your church context right now, but ours here is more evangelical. And um, I was a pastor of a church that had the Plymouth Brethren Foundation for for 25 years. I I know way too much about that. I know you do from reading your book. There's so many things that we had in common. I'm like, oh, no, oh, no. Um, Southern Ontario, family difficulty that is very formative and all all right Mm. there. Um, But don't you know so many people that are desperately, you know, trying to be faithful, as you say, and holding on to this preservation model and finding the way and fits so beautifully with what you say of the words of Christ there that... Uh, wanting to kind of come alongside and say, it's okay, you don't have to do this, there's something more. And when you when you quote Jesus like that, that, you know, there are things you aren't ready for yet, that's all future-looking, right? That it is. Yes. Um, and so that's, yes. I think that's the chief reason I, I love your book, is that it, mm. it points to something really positive. You're unafraid to to identify some of the difficulties of, of some of the other models. And, and you quote so many wonderful poets and artists, and I don't know how to necessarily pronounce this name, but absolutely Cherry Gerard or something. Isn't this an amazing quote? Say it. you got, yeah. you got to read it. I don't have the whole quote. Sorry. I just okay. got a little bit. No, no, no. Uh, but, it, you know, oh, something about nostalgia is, nostalgia as fascination with the past is an act of forgetting. And then you make the quote, because we only remember half. Yes. He says, the, the quote from, this is from, a, he was a, a, an Antarctic explorer wow. at the turn of the 20th century. And, and he says something like, um, memory causes half of the problems in the world because we only remember half. And that, that to me is what I call the nostalgia of a lot of reactionary Christianity yes. right now, which is things, it, first of all, when it looks to the future, all it sees is decline. And so therefore it's all about alarm and fear mongering. Yeah. And then it thinks the way to be faithful is this recovery project, a nostalgia for a past. But as absolutely Cherry Gerard says, um, yeah, yeah, conveniently, you only remember half. Yeah, and right. Then, and so, and in, in collective, this is true of collectives, and in, in the American context, I mean, this is just the live conversation right now. All these Christians who are like, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, longing for this recovery of some sort of golden age, which yeah. would be great if you were white. Yeah. If you were white, yeah. the 40s look amazing. And even then, like maybe mostly. Yes. But you're still... And if you're a man. Yeah. And if you're a man. So it's just the point yeah. that we, we only remember half. And by the way, I think this is true personally too. Like n- nostalgia is such a siren song for us where we, we worship this cult of adolescence or, you know, like college were the best years of your life. And so it's like, yeah, I think you're forgetting I a lot. I think of that in the American, yeah. In the American context, and I you now you're down there now, and you're American and, yeah. and Canadian, um, but the the worship of the four year kind of education where you go to the school and then from now on, like you just that's that's kind Absolutely. of everything that it. So I, I do think of that in terms of some of the cultural things of this of how nostalgia works. I, I, they come up in my mind in strange places. This morning I was reading in I think the Guardian 
uh, maybe the Times about, uh, and this was, I think, a, a writer, author, who went to one of these British public schools, but they're so private school, yeah. right? Um, like Eton or wherever, like where Boris Johnson all the went. And it's a lengthy article that goes into just the abuse, the sexual and physical abuse that so many of these boys suffered. And um, so obviously that that's how the article hits you, is like all these things that were hidden or hidden in plain sight, like everybody knew, but but it's more important to protect the reputation of the institution than to protect the, the children. And as I'm reading it, though, I'm thinking also, oh my goodness, like everything's coming apart. That this system that, that was so essential, supposedly, for so long, so we must look at whether it's the church, whether it's, and then society as a whole, you can be sympathetic, right, to people who are thinking like, but if we're looking forward, then everything's coming apart. So then you have this, it's one of my favorite quotes in your book. It's, it's actually, it's very like kind of a basic one, but um, I, where you say faithfulness can be confused with preserving the past. And then this is rather than having a gratitude for a legacy meant to propel us forward where there is an acknowledgement of, I'm so grateful for the formation in my life, including in the Plymouth Brethren Church and the people that were, but my, my love for them and my gratitude means I will not stay there. <laughs> I will yeah. reach forward, yeah. right? That, um, yeah. And so yes. I think that is just so... Yes, and I, I think this is, this is really crucial. Again, both in, in our sort of personal journeys, but also in the collective being of the body of Christ, um, our, our orientation, our posture should be primarily to the future. Do you know what I mean? Like we yes. are an eschatological people. Yes. Now we are an eschatological people because of what has been handed down. But the whole point of what has been handed down is possibility because now we're waiting to see what the spirit is doing and, and to realize that God is a God of surprise. And listen, I'll be the first to admit. I wish the spirit. I wish the spirit surprised me more. Mm. Do you know what I mean like I, I'll hmm. be the first to admit? Yeah. That um, you know when I the institutions I inhabit, they mostly end up going the way I expect, which is heartbreaking. And so I wish wow. the spirit would 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 surprise me more. But I know this. I know despair is a sin. <laughs> so there's there what I have to cultivate is the the spirit's gifted capacity to be able to still imagine the spirit's surprise. And I, I think um, that requires work too. That does mm -hmm. not come naturally. That is not a no. natural posture, it seems to me. Yeah, I and and, and it yeah. and it doesn't it doesn't um, it's not about evading tragedy or 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 the brokenness. It's it's living in the space between. Yeah, it's not just wishful thinking, and it's not. But when exactly. you say we're an eschatological people, I mean, f coming from the evangelical background, um, if the eschatology is like exceedingly dark, um, yes. then that puts so yes. so the implication we should is, say well, is that a, there's such a hopeful a eschatology, right. right? That that allows right. us to see that like the renewal of all things, or however you would, rather than like you know, a few of us get to be rescued and too bad yes. for everybody the way, else. I, I, I like to distinguish between, there's a big difference between an eschatological orientation and an end times fixation. Yeah, you, yeah. Right? Yeah. But I, I grant that maybe, maybe um, it requires actually quite a bit of theological work for people to even understand that. Yep. And uh, yep. I need to be patient about that. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> that's true, patience. Um, I want to, if it's okay, I mean, we can 
and I guess we edit if it's not, but um, no. I'm assuming it's okay because you write it. Um, you share a lot of your own personal story in the book as well, from childhood to some uh, difficulties you had in, in as an adult. Um, maybe, you know, tell us a bit about that and why you felt it was important to do that in the book and how, you know, I would assume in writing that sometimes you're like, yeah, that, you know, that fits, like, because I think it really yeah. fits, um, mm. but so much mm. of it resonates with me. So tell us, you know, why you were call, felt called to do that and how it's yeah. been to you. Yeah, it's, I, I appreciate the question and, and thanks for your response to it. Um, th- I, I would say this is something I first started doing kind of a couple books ago in a book on Augustine called On the Road with St. Augustine. And I think that's partly because, well, it's probably multiple reasons. One of them is, I'll confess, it was just therapeutic for me mm. uh, to, mm. to be able to sort of mm-hmm. give testimony, mm-hmm. if you will, uh, and to narrate my story mm. along with Augustine's story. And so that, that was my first experience of maybe being a bit more vulnerable in my writing. And But then I also realized, and I should say my wife Deanna is, is a huge encouragement in this regard, that... Um, because I'm trying to do a kind of writing now that is not just like explanatory, but is affective. Mm. I realize that vulnerability is how you establish solidarity. Mm. And at the end of the day, I want to sort of meet a reader and be with a reader. And I want them to feel like I'm giving myself away too. And so um, I think that's part of it. I'll also say, uh, I guess I felt a little bit of a conviction for some of us who are kind of like professional uh, scholars like and Christian philosophers, yeah. academics, to be honest about mental yeah. health stuff. Yeah. Sure. Um, because I think, you know, in a way I get paid to think, yeah. uh, which is incredible. Uh, as my wife says, why does anybody care what you think? Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> I've, but I've there's heard the also same. something, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it's, 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 um, I guess I'm honestly trying to uh, create an opening for somebody to be able to be candid with themselves by saying, listen, you know, if you have struggled with depression or suicidal ideation, you're not alone. Yeah. In fact, let me tell you, yeah. I'm supposed to have it all figured out and I don't. Um, and so I, I hope it's just creating sort of permission. Uh, well, that, for, for- you know, that answer is speaking to you and, and, it's such a privilege, of course, to speak to someone who wrote a book that, that you really, really loved, and, that, and that's mm-hmm. happening in this case for me. So, because often you're kind of imagining the, the, the intent of, of the author, or you're, you're you know, gleaning it from, from what's written. Um, and hearing that answer just, you know, makes me even more kind of convinced that, like, what you say there, that from vulnerability to solidarity is exactly what happened. Now, I think in some ways that might be because there's some similar things in you, in your story and mine, the Southern Ontario stuff, as I say, the, sure. some of the mental health staff, the, um, but you, it, it's so, um, it brings life within, you know, you've got these songs in there and poetry and, but then this kind of brings it that next level. And so really, Oh, that's great. Well, I appreciate that. That I I just want to say that's really encouraging to me. And it's, um, it's, it helps to have a sense of confirmation about taking that risk. Well, yes. And also that, 
you know, because you're not speaking about necessarily easy ideas, right? There's not sloganeering right. in here and kind of, right. but you're able to take these ideas that matter. They're not impossible to grasp by any means. And if you say, as you say, if you do the work, this makes great sense and kind of, but you're taking those ideas that do take some work at least, and then saying, in my life, right? This yeah. is so that yeah. they're not just out there. Concretizes and, it a little yeah, bit. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. One of those, as we, you know, get to, um, move to kind of concluding is um so i grew up in well some of my my upbringing was in southern ontario as well so yeah um and uh my grandparents lived in leamington ontario last name we tomato country tomato country heinz and point peely and monarch butterflies yeah beautiful so they would they would take me to see monarch butterflies right because there was the migration i think to mexico right and to um you speak about that margaret Renkel, and this is again obviously within the larger context of inhabiting time one of the examples that you give and again the book is so filled with these beautiful examples is of margaret Renkel's, i think uh, called late migration um when she says that uh the monarch butterfly migration um in one year is four life cycles. It's wild, isn't it? Isn't that incredible? It's so wild. <laughs> and there's yeah. there's something about that. So first of all, it resonates with, oh, you know, the monarchs. Yeah. And the, so in other words, just for your listeners, yeah. right, to confirm, that by the time this sort of like, I don't know what a group of butterflies is called. It's not a flock. But imagine yeah. this. By the time this, this flock of butterflies has made it from southern Ontario to Mexico, there are people who arrive at the there are butterflies who arrive at the other end who were not there in the middle were not there at the beginning it is it's a remarkable it's their thing great, great, and that great, we great, don't know it yeah and but when you read that and of course i would assume this is kind of the intent it's like oh okay then my life you know back to that reinhold Niebuhr quote that is there as well like if anything worth doing in life you know can't can't be accomplished in one lifetime right that and this, and then you speak also of seasons of understanding God, that you know when I was that young pastor, or when you were the, that, there's a way of seeing God that not only in seasons of of growing up and growing old, but even in terms of health, um, diminishing capacity, whatever it might be, physical ability. So the book is so filled with that. And then I want to move as as we end to this concept. You brought it up, uh, Todd. Can I say one thing of about of course, the, yeah, because because I think. <laughs> Um, yeah, the, the, the trick is to imagine, okay, imagine I'm a butterfly who's in the middle of the journey. So on the one hand, I am an heir of what's gone before me. Yeah. And there's, there's possibilities that I don't even understand that have been handed down to me that I, that I need to become aware of and cultivate gratitude for. But at the same time, I should be asking myself, what am I bequeathing, yeah. right? What am I, what, how am I launching the next? And I, I just think that's, um, it's a very humbling posture exactly. to find oneself in. And it is antidote to some of that malaise that we mentioned with the no when kind of stuff that so uh our producers here amanda and allison just found this is going to kill you in a good way um what a group of butterflies is called you ready it's a kaleidoscope it? of butterflies no kidding yeah. that is amazing <laughs> i love that yeah so i love that by the way there's apparently there's also my wife has i can't think of the title right now but barbara kingsolver yeah, has written a novel uh, that is built around this. Okay, I'll have to look it up for sure. So the last, you know, I want to move to something you mentioned that when we started talking about your your book that's coming out. 
Um, and that is this concept of redemption and redemption, not as an erasing, but as in these are the words you use as a gathering up. Um, and so a little bit of, you know, my own narrative here to, to, to fill in. Um, it was Southern Ontario for me growing up, but my mom, who I, who was very wonderful and I loved and all, um, took us as kids one day, like took us, it would have been Amber Alert, um, right? And across the country, my dad came home from work, kids aren't there anymore, furniture was emptied out, all those kinds of stuff. And then a few years later sent us back, um, a few days before Christmas. I can't take care of them anymore, you take them. So my dad, with a white Corvette in the 70s, became a single dad, trying to take care of us. And and I have this picture. So I'm using, I'm using your book to, to inform this kind of stuff. Uh, we're at a Max Milk store. If you're Southern Ontario, you know, it's called Max yep. Milk, right? Not just Max. And my dad is um, getting out of the car, probably just leaving me in the car as a little boy, but to get, um, to go in and get something and then comes back in the car and he would be obviously way younger um, than I am now, but trying to take care of this little boy, you know, his, his kid that he hasn't seen for years or whatever. And, um, and then he... Put, the song comes on the radio, New Kid in Town by the Eagles. Um, and he loved that. And he played, and so for, for over the whole of my life, kind of, he died a couple of years ago, but that song, mm. New Kid in Town. And I picture in time, what was he feeling as this, as this, you know, grew up Mennonite around, you know, in and around Leamington. And, and so your book just, and mm. that all of that is somehow gathered up and redeemed, including the next, some of the negative aspects of that story, which there's a lot to, and your yeah. book allowed me to see, and of course mm. I worked through some of this, but to see, yes, redemption is a gathering up of all of these things. And these things mm. become more vivid even, even mm. some of the pain, mm. right? but mm. it is redeemed, not erased. Mm. Yeah, uh, I, I anyway, love sorry. that. Thank you for sharing that. Because I mean, it's exactly right that um, in a way, exactly what the spirit wants to release you into for the sake of the world, actually, in some way depends on that experience. And it doesn't justify it. And it doesn't yeah. ratify, you know, it's not, yeah, totally. it's not an excuse for it. it all it's saying is, Everything that you are called to in bearing God's image to your neighbor is actually drawing on that part of your story. Yeah. And I also love it that there's a song there yeah. because <laughs> the way the song yeah. remembers when, do you know what I mean? That's, that's a huge part of it. Yes. Absolutely. That it, and well, thank you so much for saying that and saying that so well that um, this hopeful view of redemption that as I've recounted for me, um, becomes personal, pastoral. The the book was even, yeah. you know, that. Um, mm. But uh, I see a hope, and you know, we didn't talk about this a lot, but you can we can glean it from this. That for the church also, like the gathered community moving forward, that there is a better project than preservation. Though we are grateful, and that yeah. and that this is some of what we've spoken about. So uh, I appreciate that too because yeah. I, I I think that's exactly right. I think one of the most countercultural things we can do right now is hope yeah. and uh which is which is a way of inhabiting time and so that I, i'm so grateful to hear that was a sort of a take so that, that's always our last question and we kind of i think it's already been answered but we'll ask it because we always ask it um um and so you could ask you know it doesn't have to be a deep yeah. answer but it can be uh, what wh what brings you or gives you or allows you to feel hope right now at this particular time yeah, that's a great question. Uh, um, you're catching me on a rough day, but uh, I will say, um, <laughs> uh, I, I do think um, it's, it's the creativity 
of people who are making things in spite of everything. Do you know what I mean? Like there's, I'm just so grateful for a community of makers who continue to gift me with things that add to the beauty of the world and surprise me. And so I think as long as that's going on, I I have a, a sort of, confirmation that the spirit is afoot in our in our moment i hear you thank you so much uh jamie thank you i hope we are this has been a treat yeah it's been great for us too and we hope to keep the uh, well i know we'll keep the conversation going and have you visit up here in vancouver and uh you know that would be wonderful we'll go back to lynn canyon and 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 such that would be a real treat it'd be great so and best to you this day thank you so very much Thank you. It's great to start, spend time with you. Thanks for thanks for reading so closely. I appreciate oh, it. Oh yeah, well I loved it. Yeah, thanks. Rector's Cupboard releases a new episode every other Friday. The podcast is a production of Reflector Project. Hosts are Todd Weeb and Allison Williams. Cupboard master for tastings and locations is Ken Bell. Production and social media by Amanda Mina. For past episodes and other content, visit rectorscupboard.ca. Thanks for listening.